Preaching to the Norcoiners, Bitcoin Tech Talk, issue number 255. As always, you can find my newsletter on jimmysong.substack.com. It comes in every Monday morning, as it does like days like today. The hero's journey for every Bitcoiner follows a certain arc. You learn about it, then go down the path of trying to figure out how to get it, maybe take some detours in trying to mine it or trade it. If you're reading this newsletter, you're probably near the end of the journey where you've become convinced of the value of Bitcoin and are now trying to convince your loved ones about its usefulness. I've been in Bitcoin since 2011, and I've been talking to people about Bitcoin the entire time. And what follows is just a little bit of the social strategy that I found regarding convincing people. As much as we like to think that we're special and that we can get our loved ones to stack through our force of will, that's generally not the case. So if it is the case for you, you should really look into a career in sales. We love our friends and family, but orange pilling is often not that simple, and for many, a long and difficult road. I still remember telling my parents and sister about Bitcoin in 2013 when Bitcoin was $80. I told them to buy some, even if they didn't understand it, just in case. They didn't listen. I also told my friends on Facebook to look at it. To my knowledge, none of them bought, and several warned me that it was a scam. But the only person that listened was my mother-in-law, not who, not having great command of English as an immigrant, didn't exactly have the big, best deal flow. My point here is that most people are resistant to Bitcoin when they first hear about it because they don't understand it. The few people that do listen and buy are doing so because they trust you and your judgment. And though we'd like to think that we have massive credibility with our friends and family to get them to invest in what we think is best for them, most people simply don't trust others with their financial decisions. In other words, preaching doesn't usually work and people's natural defenses go up very quickly. This is because preaching is how a lot of hucksters work and they tend to emphasize doing things in a hurry. In a sense, preaching is a very high time preference method of convincing someone. What works much better is to let people know what you are in, that you are into Bitcoin and leave it at that. What I found is that after a while, usually a period of two to five years, those that are curious will either buy on their own or come back to ask some questions. It's well known in sales that you need to expose someone to an idea seven times before they really investigate it. That's the cognitive hurdle that we have to overcome and it can't all come from the same source. Those exposures take time, and if there's anything that helps you on convincing someone in Bitcoin, it's time. Bitcoin makes the news during bull runs, and that's typically when you'll get a lot of questions from your friends and family. And really, this is the best thing for both, your, both Bitcoin and your relationship with that person. Leaving them alone to explore it themselves and only giving them guidance when asked is the best strategy. Bitcoin's number go up technology definitely helps here as the returns are undeniable and most people get a sense of regret at not being more curious when they first heard about it. This should increase your credibility with your loved ones in the long run. The overwhelming evidence of its success, in other words, is the ultimate low time preference convincer. So I wrote this article um, as sort of a reflection on a lot of the people that I've um, I've tried to convince with Bitcoin. Generally, I have not been successful. And this is the common theme with most people, is that they're not very good at convincing people. 
What does work, though, is sort of identifying yourself as a Bitcoiner and just sort of leaving it that you don't need to convince people or to defend it every time it comes up or whatever, because in a sense, having Bitcoin is enough and you'll be proven right regardless. And, you know, they might want to denigrate it or whatever, but ultimately it's all about Bitcoin itself. It's going to do well on its own. Uh, and that's what's ultimately going to get people curious and asking you about it. Um, you can definitely nudge them if they're curious, but without that curiosity, it doesn't make any sense. All right, let's talk about Bitcoin. BIP174.org is a tool to parse and explore PSBTs. PSBTs are a bit tricky to debug, and this is an excellent tool for users and wallet developers to figure out what's wrong. The tool takes the base64 encoded PSBT and parses them into inputs, outputs, and so on. As parsing base64 is very difficult versus hexadecimal, this tool helps in figuring out where the PSBT is doing something wrong. The really nice feature is that you can add or delete parts of the PSBT and the base64 PSBT automatically adjusts. So I found this tool to be extremely useful, especially if you're working with PSBTs and if you're a wallet developer or something like that. Um, PSBTs are becoming a much bigger standard and uh, debugging it and making sure that everything's working properly is not easy. And you either have to make your own tools or use a tool like this one. So I would recommend trying it and um, certainly playing with it. Yakshaper explains how AnyPrevOut APO enables L2. L2 allows for multi-party lightning channels and removes some of the attack surface of current lightning channels. The main thrust of the article is that we need some way to authorize not just a specific previous output, but any previous output that has the same public key. The tutorial is great for getting an idea on where the challenge with APO is. The on-chain discount and security simplicity that comes with L2 make this a compelling Nexoft work. So a lot of people don't really understand what L2 is. And to be quite frank with you, it took me a while to learn that. And I had to read the white paper several times and so on. But basically, it's a multi-channel um, lightning. Uh, and it removes this asymmetric uh, secret keeping that needs to happen on any channel. So if I open a channel with somebody, I keep some secrets that if uh, my counterparty finds out, then they may be able to drain me of some money and so on. Uh, with L2, uh, it's completely symmetric. You don't you don't need to hide secrets other than your private key, of course, uh, from the other uh, counterparty. Um, so from a security standpoint, it's a big upgrade. Um, from a feature standpoint, you get multi-party channels. So uh, you can replace a particular um, input um, with a previous one and so on. So it, it makes for sequencing really cool. Um, I believe you need to use the lock time field for the actual sequencing, which is a little bit ironic, but um, but that that's what L2 does, and that's why we need any prev out, because you need to be able to change the actual input that was being signed. Um, and with uh, APO, um, you you can have something like L2, which uh, can have more, you know more than two parties in a lightning channel, um, which would be really cool. And uh, allow for a lot better liquidity and so on. Camouflage is a list of issues related to enhancing privacy in the various Bitcoin projects. For privacy advocates, this is a list to watch as it offers progress updates of various tools. I would love to see them incorporate bounties on some of these issues eventually. So I believe they're tracking three, uh, BISC, Bitcoin Core, and LND. But basically, they're looking at all of the GitHub issues and just sort of 
listing them. Uh, so issues and pull requests, I, I, I think, are the two things. Uh, if you're really serious about privacy uh, and like want to know what's going on, uh, and you know, trying to encourage certain innovations and so on, th this would be the page to go. And you know, if they had a bounty program or something, I think that would be really awesome as well. All right, Mike, uh, let's uh, talk about Lightning now. Michael Reed gives a crash course on Lightning app development. The tutorial mimics his journey into developing for the Lightning ecosystem and makes heavy use of Polar and LND. For developers wanting to play around with Lightning to see what it can do, this is a great way to experiment. Now, if only Replit would make something like this available. Um, so Michael Reed uh, basically uh, decided, hey, this is so interesting and I want to get into it. Um, he ended up using Polar and the Medium post goes through exactly what he did. Um, and it's, it's kind of really cool. Um, I just wish it were on Replit because uh, I really like that platform for just sort of uh, bootstrapping something really quickly and so on. Collider writes about the benefits of the Lightning Network for traders. The article explains a lot of the things that traders care about, like perpetual futures, funding rates, and arbitrage trades. The main argument is that most of these trades require fast execution, which are hampered by on-chain transactions, but can be made much faster and more securely with Lightning. As traders are big players in the Bitcoin ecosystem, don't be surprised if their needs end up driving a lot of innovation in Lightning. Um, so I, I learned quite a bit on like how perpetual futures work on on this article and you know basically how BitMEX works and the funding rates on both sides and um, you know how the perpetual future is essentially pegged to the underlying and so on. Um, but the main point there is that the speed of execution uh, allows um, for better arbitrage trades, which essentially keeps the prices the same between exchanges and so on. So I think ultimately that level of arbitrage available is good for everyone. And, uh, and once you have something like Lightning and sort of fat channels going back and forth between a particular exchange and uh, a trader, um, that this, this could be a really big thing. Um, and what would be ideal is if you can go from exchange to exchange really quickly and then, you know, arb out any opportunities. Um, and that way everyone pays essentially the same price and you don't, you don't have crazy fluctuations or differences between two exchanges when there's no liquidity between them. Substack is allowing receiving of lightning payments for newsletters on their platforms. As pointed out in the article, two of the top five money-making newsletters are about Bitcoin, which makes me wonder, should I be creating a premium version of this newsletter? Please leave comments or reply to the email if you have an opinion. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting uh, thing. Uh, it, it's being enabled by a company called OpenNode. And basically, a Substack does allow like paid subscriptions and so on. And I think, I don't know, Pomp's newsletter and maybe Dan Held's newsletter or something like that. They're they're two of the top five. Um, maybe there's a trader in there as well. Uh, but they're they're making you know it's a it's a big part of the Substack ecosystem. So they're allowing for Lightning payments. Um, I haven't charged for this newsletter or any of my content really. Um, just my books and stuff. Uh, and you know, a lot of that is available for free as well, but I, I've been doing that for a while and, um, you know, I'm curious about, you know, maybe charging a little bit and seeing, seeing where that goes, because, um, you know, I, I, I think there is a sacredness to, um, monetary transactions. And if you get something for free, then you can't really complain. But if, uh, 
you know, if, if money is being exchanged and there's a real obligation on both sides and so on. So, um, you know, there, there is something to that and I, I'm at least contemplating it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Maybe it'll be like, um, you know, every other week for normal and then you get it every week if you're subscribed, something like that. I, I don't know. We'll figure it out. Cryptode is an index of interesting lightning projects. I was floored by the sheer number of projects on there, many of which I hadn't heard before. I've noticed a huge uptick in lightning usage, and for myself, I'm finding that I'm doing roughly 20 times the lightning transactions as I am on train transactions. I imagine this will only go up over time, and that would mean hypergrowth for such projects. So the growth of lightning, I think, really hit me in the face when I went to BitBlockBoom, because at BitBlockBoom, I was selling my books and so on, you know, a bunch of people paid me in cash and, uh, you know, other people paid me with cash or Venmo or cash app or Venmo. But the people that paid in Bitcoin, they they all use Lightning. They all had Lightning wallets. It's uh, it's amazing the penetration that Lightning wallets have had. And basically, I, I took uh, I, I didn't take a single um, on chain transaction for my books. I ended up converting some of the cash into uh, you know, into Bitcoin and one of those transactions being ended up on being on chain, but the rest of it just ended up just being on lightning. Um, it's pretty awesome. Like you, you get it right away and you don't have to wait and, and whatever. Uh, so I, I found it was, uh, you know, it, it's really kind of hitting its moment right now. And, um, the number of apps that are coming on and, and so on is really kind of, you know, making it, really enjoyable to to use this and uh we're we're like right at the cusp of uh, of some serious adoption and i could i could feel it happening in the community um but yeah i mean regardless uh it, it's kind of cool to see all these different lightning projects and i, I can only imagine they'll go up over time because you know like lightning users are sorely underserved they they have a lot of money they have a lot of channels open and so on they don't have that much to do other than like route payments and stuff. So any sort of game or entertainment or goods or services that you can get for Lightning, um, they're going to find a pretty receptive audience. So I would encourage anyone that's uh, that's working on these to keep going and uh, and see where it takes you. All right, economics, engineering, etc. Alex Gladstein has a powerful interview with Roya Maboub about her experience with Bitcoin and Afghanistan. This is a long read and shows just how powerful Bitcoin can be in places like Afghanistan, which currently lack banking services. The article shows some of the pitfalls of Bitcoin, like the perception that it's gambling or scammy, but also goes through some of the triumphs, like the Afghan women that were able to take their wealth with them when escaping abroad. I found it surprising that adjusted for purchasing power and internet penetration, Afghanistan is seventh in paid peer-to-peer uh, -peer exchange volume, suggesting that much like El Salvador, people without banking services are using Bitcoin. It will be interesting to watch Bitcoin's development in this country as the years progress. So um, really powerful story. There, there's a story of some uh, some of the women that Mabu paid about <coughs> uh, in Bitcoin and how they were able to leave and use some of the money once they arrived at a different a country to you know start their own life and stuff it, it's just a really powerful story about how bitcoin can ch change lives now unfortunately a lot of afghanistan uh wasn't into bitcoin in 2013 but the few people that were have benefited greatly um and i imagine it will be the case going forward and there is a market for bitcoin even in places like afghanistan apparently there's a lot of people buying it 
um, you know, as a way to store their value. They need banking services. So it'll be very interesting to watch, um, you know, how it develops in sort of distressed places like that, like Afghanistan and, uh, and go from there. Robert Breedlove argues that Bitcoin is a way to limit war. The article focuses on what we really mean by property and how war is really a way to resolve property disputes. Property with clear edges makes for less disputes and property that's hard to seize also make for less disputes. As uh, Breedlove points out, Bitcoin is property that's very hard to seize or take, even with massive violence. I have some more thoughts on this that will be on Robert's podcast soon. So um, just so you know, Robert and I did record a pretty long podcast. I think uh, we have six worth hours worth of content that he'll be releasing at some point. Uh, but a lot of what we discussed was war and uh, sort of having good boundaries around property tend to be uh, the clearest way and the most efficient way in which we can interact with each other. And it, it takes away a lot of conflict and so on. And his argument in that article is really about war um, being a way to settle property disputes. Um, and I, I think there's definitely something to that. And limiting those um, is a big part of what, uh, you know, what Bitcoin accomplishes, because uh, the property boundaries around Bitcoin are just so absolutely clear and spelled out and so on. The IMF has printed a bunch of bunch more money called special drawing rights. SDRs are IMF's fiat money that are only used by central banks. Not many people know about these, but they play a significant role in the world economy. As with all central bank monetary expansion, this sort of action is at best a redistribution and at worst straight theft. Um, so it's crazy that they're you know able to just print another six hundred fifty billion dollars worth of SDRs, um, and some central banks like Canada's, for example, take them as their reserve, um, and these are supposedly backed by a basket of currencies and so on. Um, but really, it's 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 just sort of the IMF getting to print money, uh, and originally um, with Bretton Woods and so on, they were. Uh, you know, going to do something like that. Uh, World Bank came out of the uh, of Bretton Woods as well, but neither of those uh, you know organizations have anything uh, like what they were intended for. Instead, they're being used by those in power to basically monetarily control others. Speaking of inflation, this essay looks at the link between monetary inflation and verbal inflation. The author compares academic credibility with monetary credibility and concludes that just as monetary credibility is lost through hyperinflation, a similar thing is happening with academic credibility. The result is that most people are largely discounting whatever the official narrative is on anything and thus much more skeptical in general. I suspect verbal inflation, much like monetary inflation, will be a big underlying driver of Bitcoin adoption in the years ahead. So uh, go read the uh, article. I, I thought the con conceptual framework around there was absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, there is sort of like a verbal inflation where everyone is sort of trying to outdo each other um, to get attention and so on. And, um, you know, there, there's no real credibility in a lot of different things now. Um, you know, it turns out a lot of academic studies are unreproducible. Um, and, you know, they, these are sort of like the cracks around, um, you know, academic credibility. Uh, and, you know, it, it's very similar to how monetary credibility works. Um, you know, to a large extent, monetary credibility is still there um, for the dollar. Uh, but during a time of hyperinflation, that, that, that would go away. And uh, the author concludes that there's, uh, you know, this is happening with, uh, you know, verbal inflation, that expertise isn't necessarily like that credible anymore because they're saying just more and more outlandish things.
Jack Dorsey wants to build a decentralized exchange. The idea seems to be to make each individual able to run a mini exchange. This is the right idea of decentralization where each user is running their own server. I can imagine an Umbral, Start9, Mind on BTC having the option to host an exchange where you trade BTC for Liquid Tether or something similar. That's probably not what they're thinking as the details haven't been revealed yet, but I would like to see something like that develop. So um, for actual decentralization, you need a, a, you know each individual to run a server. And um, if you have that, say, over the Lightning Network and you're able to put out asks and bids in some sort of like semi-binding way so you can't just like flood it with fake bids or fake asks or something like that, um, then that would work. Um, you know, unfortunately, like that's that's a lot of design work that needs to go into an actual decentralized exchange. Uh, maybe there's a way to do it where you you post some collateral and uh, in order to be able to put asks and send uh, asks and bids into uh, you know, into the network and it's your job to like collate them and relay them and gather them and figure out if it's something that you want. I, I imagine something like that would ultimately be the way to do it and having multiple uh, different nodes that just collect all of these and uh, push them out and, you know, figure out which ones are actually more credible or not and uh, which ones are, you know, um, back with a bond or something like that, that 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 would be the way to make it. Um, I'm not sure if that's what they're thinking, but that's what I would like to see. All right, some quick hits. Sweden made the mistake of denominating dollar amounts, not Bitcoin amounts. So this is a story of a, a thief uh, that that stole uh, something and had to remunerate in Bitcoin and, you know, basically uh, held some Bitcoin. They valued it in dollars. And Bitcoin's gone up in the time that this prisoner, uh, you know, hasn't had access to the Bitcoin. So um, Sweden basically was forced to give the thief the difference. So kind of interesting. Uh, basically, you want to be on a Bitcoin standard there and not the dollar standard. Uh, let's see. Cuba recognizes Bitcoin. Um, yeah, uh, Cuba looks like they're kind of following El Salvador. I'm not sure exactly what they're thinking, but... I do suspect that there's a lot more Bitcoin activity than we know about in Cuba, and they're recognizing that it's actually bringing wealth into the country, which we, they desperately need. Blockstream raised $210 million at a $3.2 billion valuation. Uh, so this was some big news, at least from a financial standpoint. It looks like they're going to get into some capital-heavy industries like ASIC miners and you know energy um, things and so on. Um, but it's going to require some capital expenditure, so it makes sense that they're raising a lot of capital. Another week, another poorly engineered coin forks unexpectedly. This one was, of course, uh, Ethereum, and uh, you know, is, is it really any surprise? Um, there, there's a thread on exactly what happened on Twitter and so on, but you know, I mean, uh, I've been warning you about this for years. All right, some events. Uh, there's an online Christian conference that I've recorded a video for called Fate Driven Investor. That's on September 8th and 9th. Um, I will be in Miami for the Oslo Freedom Forum, October 3rd through 6th, and at Atlanta for TabConf on November 4th and 5th. Unfortunately, I had to cancel the UK event as there's a 10-day quarantine required. The programming blockchain seminar is therefore no longer going to be in the UK, but will be in Atlanta, Georgia on November 2nd and 3rd. It's a two-day seminar for programmers to learn about Bitcoin, and you can apply. 
And I also have some scholarships available for those that can't afford it. All right, so some podcasts, etc. On this week's Bitcoin Fixes This, I took some listener questions. This range from my thoughts on war to Christian books I like. So, you know, I didn't have a guest this week. Uh, I will have one this week, but didn't have one last week. So I took listener questions. Turned out it was like really fun. There was a ton of people that were asking different questions about all sorts of things. And I don't know, those, those seem pretty fun to me. Um, and, you know, I, I might do them a little more regularly. I read through last week's newsletter, which you can find here. I talked to uh, talked about the new book with Ashton Cohen. So um, that was a that was a fun interview. Um, I, I recorded a ton, but you know they're getting released over a period of weeks, and some weeks I get like five, and other weeks I get none, and so it it it, it varies. But that was the only one that released this week. I didn't do any shows with Tone or anything, but. Um, but yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, it, it's it, it's a fun one to listen to. All right. My other books are The Little Bitcoin Book and, uh, and uh, Programming Bitcoin, which you can find on Amazon. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this newsletter. I'm an advisor. I'm proud to be a part of a company that's enhancing security for Bitcoin holders. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or Bitcoin-native financial services, learn more at Unchained.com. Fiat de Lenda Est, this song is done.